Hi there, I'm Robert Netgen, host of the Information Security Podcast. Today, we are live from the Information Security Summit 2019 event in Cleveland, Ohio, where thought leaders and industry experts come together for three days of intriguing discussion, networking, and learning. Today, we are giving you an inside look at one of the 2019 keynote addresses given by Bob Kulka of IBM. He will be discussing top cybersecurity issues when migrating to the cloud. What I'm going to take you through is a topic which kind of confounds a lot of people because it's easy to say, uh, but as soon as you start talking about it, you realize people are coming out a lot of, lot of different perspectives on it. And that's what does it mean to secure the cloud and how are people secure in the cloud? So by trade, 25 years doing cyber at IBM, I was one of the first 12 people to do distributed cyber at IBM because of course we've done it for the mainframe since the 1960s. And I took over the portfolio in 1998, realized that our firewall antivirus and PKI were all last place and shrinking, and that that's not a good career move. So uh, I ended up selling off our antivirus asset to Symantec and getting rid of everything else and started acquiring companies. And so in September of 99, we acquired a web single sign-on company, which we all call Web Access Management today. And we did so well with that, corporate said keep going, and uh, we've now acquired 28 cybersecurity companies over the last 20 years, and we now are a $3.5 billion business inside of IBM. So we, Symantec, and Cisco are the three largest security providers in the world. Personally, the perspective that I'm coming at with you today is I've spent literally that entire 25 years on the road with clients working on cyber issues. One of the reasons I like this event is A, it truly is a power of all the regional cyber conferences. This one attracts the top, it really does. I've spoke here many times. I spent a lot of time in Cleveland. I've got several clients here that I spend a lot of time with here, even though I live in Austin, Texas. Ohio is the only state that I've paid state taxes on since I moved to Austin 23 years ago because <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. If you hit 28 days, you have to pay taxes here. So a couple years ago, I got to pay Ohio state taxes, which was interesting, <laughs> explaining that to the wife. <laughs> but my perspective is I've been on the road the whole time. I made the mistake of asking American Airlines recently how many miles I've earned with them. And uh, they said, oh, that was their answer. And it's uh, 10.7 million air miles with American Airlines. So if you do the math, I've been off the ground for about three years of my life, literally off the ground. I attribute that to the fact that I feel young because I've heard you don't age when you're off the ground in the air. So <laughs> I'll choose to believe that. It's also probably why I'm still very happily married after 26 years, because it's hard to get tired of somebody if you're, if you're going half the time. <laughs> you know, that's the way it works. But anyways, but, and that's just cyber. All those, I didn't even fly American until I moved to Austin, because I grew up in upstate New York, as evidenced by RIT in Syracuse. So it's, I'll start with a quote from a client from a Midwest bank. I won't go further than that, and it's not in Cleveland. But a Midwestern bank uh, was with the people who are driving the cloud transformation within the business a couple of weeks ago out in Los Angeles at a, at a cloud innovation forum that we had. And the cloud people said, uh, okay, Bob, you're the security, I was the token security guy at, the, at this conference. It was about cloud innovation. And uh, this, uh, the two people from this Midwestern bank said to me, let me 
open by telling you our current cloud migration status. We have gone all in on Agile DevOps. We're gone, we've seen the light, it is what's happening, we're doing Agile DevOps, we're deploying on Kubernetes, we're going. If I were to characterize to you inside of our shop what's going on is that the CISO reports to the risk management function, which is increasingly popular these days, and here's how we'd characterize it. The CISO and the risk management function feel like they're being very progressive in helping us get to the cloud. IT thinks they're just in the way, and we who are leading the cloud transformation would observe that they're never around until after we've done something already and they come back and tell us everything we did wrong. That's our state of, of cloud migration right now. And if I could tell you how many times I've heard some variant of that, right? And, and I'd observe to you that one of the things going on here is the fact that I know as, as a vendor, right, when I'm working with you guys, I'm typically working with CISOs and the lead architects and all the teams, is that we're like, how do we intelligently, rationally, with good governance, help the business get to the cloud, right? And what we sometimes forget in that discussion is that on the other side of my relationship with you is your relationship with the business, which is increasingly getting like I heard from that Midwestern bank, which is we're going, dude, whether you like it or not. And so you can either be here with us and hopefully help us, or we're just going to do our own thing. And you and I both know that if you go and do your own thing, inevitably there's going to be some problems. Right, so, uh, and in fact, I think now we have, because you know, IBM bit the farm on cloud and cognitive about, what, four years ago. We have so much experience with this now that one of the core truths of moving to the cloud is that when you move to the cloud, all it does is accentuate the issues that you had before you went there, right? One of my favorite cases was I was at a, a company in Boston, also, once again, obviously not to be named, what they had done is they set up two years ago a private cloud. And uh, they set up their private cloud as an entree of eventually getting to public cloud for cost savings and flexibility and all the things that we talk about. And they had two years of being rock stars. People were doing stuff, they were moving to DevOps, they were, they were doing this great stuff. Then phase two of the project came where they now were going to switch over from private cloud to a public cloud offering, in their case, Azure. Then the bills started coming in. They didn't have any chargeback on the private cloud. So basically, if you wanted to spin up a bunch of containers, have at you. It's cloud, dude, right? All of a sudden, they literally did a switch over, and within weeks, they blew the budget for the year. Because what had happened is everybody got sloppy. They're going, hey, I just kick up a bunch of containers and go team, right? So what happened? What, what, what always happens in that? All of a sudden, all the executive messages go out, and you start putting extra governance in place for doing new stuff, and all of a sudden, everything grinds to a halt, right? So there's a lot of war stories now in moving to the cloud, but the important part of it is that all you're going to do is accentuate the shortfalls that you had in your cyber program beforehand, okay? So what I'm going to take you through is observations on that and what we're seeing as best practices of how you make this transition. 
because this is, I mean, this is getting, it's not quite universal yet because there's still a lot of uh, laggards on this, but not a lot lowercase a lot, not uppercase a lot. So, and one of the things that gets me is, is that I've realized that there's three different planes of talking about moving to the cloud. There's four from and in. Security for the cloud, security from the cloud, and security in the cloud. And that's where I think people are getting confused, is that if you're talking about providing security for the cloud initiatives, and someone starts asking you about configurations in the Kubernetes containers, and you go, I don't even know what that is, then you're not gonna have a productive discussion. If on the other hand, you're having a discussion around container security, and someone says, yeah, but actually our initiative is actually to move to SaaS for actually delivering security, which is security from the cloud, then you're not gonna be, on, you're not gonna be having the same conversation. So that's what I've noticed, that, that there's three different vectors, I guess you could say, of this conversation, and oftentimes people are either not aware of that or just confused by it, all right? So what I'm gonna share with you first is, I found some statistics recently that kind of, as I assume everybody in here is a cyber professional, as I like to say, in the cyber bubble. All of us in the bubble, there's some great stats right now that will blow your mind. And then I'm gonna talk about it from kind of the high level, the macro level, and the micro level. Because the macro level is all about <laughs> the fact that the reason you and I exist is that we are a risk management function. Whether you report to risk management or not, cybersecurity is risk management, right? And yet, the vast majority of programs around the world have not been built for risk management, they've been built for compliance. And there's a fundamental difference between having a cyber program based on compliance and a program based on risk. A litmus test for where your company is, is there's a bunch of them, but here's one of my favorites right now. I used to ask the question, so we're gonna call this question zero, because it doesn't matter. Question zero is, do you have a SIM? Do you have security analytics, right? Security information event management. Everybody now has SIM. Well, except for one healthcare company in the Southeast I recently called on that said, um, no, we're not doing that. And I said, wait a minute, what do you mean? That was a layup question. And they said, well, we read a, uh, a analyst report that in three years this elk stuff's gonna take over. End of conversation. I said, so what are you gonna do for security analytics for the next three years? And the answer was, and I'm not kidding, well, why would we invest if it's just going to change? Can't make this stuff up. So, but everybody else has one. So question zero doesn't count. Everybody's got a SIM. Used to have multiples. Most people have consolidated, right? So question one, the one that matters. Do you believe most of what it tells you? Exactly. Right? SIMs, if you're doing risk management, everybody that does this for a living knows it really takes six to nine months to tune it around the risks you're worried about and get it right to that sweet spot. When you have a compliance-based program, you have about 13 checkboxes that the auditor found that you know they're gonna come back in three, six, or 12 months. And so one of the checkboxes was that, so you put it in, you tune it for one or two weeks or maybe three weeks, you get the pretty dashboard your sock looks cool, right? With all the monitors, with all the colors on it and everything. And, but most of it's false positives, right? So you don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. It looks cool, but it's not doing much. It's, it's picturesque, but that's about it, right? And then you go, I'm gonna come back to it. 
I'll come back to that. I'll get it tuned. Then you go to the other 12 check boxes. And guess what? Most people never come back to it. Right? So I'd observe to you after 25 years of doing cybersecurity that one of the core truths of cybersecurity is that the world is full of underdeployed security tools. They're set up, but they're actually not doing much. Right? So if you don't believe what your sim's telling you, or you don't believe what your sim through your MSSP provider or however you're doing it is telling you, and I've got some great war stories that I can't tell here because of time and sensitivity. Um, but anyways, so the macro factors in moving to the cloud is, are you starting from a compliance or risk-based program to begin with? The micro factors are on the fact that when you move to the cloud, there are some wonderful fantasies that human beings outside of the cyber bubble believe. And they sound so good that they have to believe them, but they're wrong. So this whole idea of a shared responsibility model, right? People, uh, when people hear that, because everybody talks about shared responsibility model in the cloud, unfortunately, a lot of people think the shared responsibility means that you do everything that either I'm not aware I should do or that maybe I should know that I should do. Right? That's not shared responsibility, right? That's ignorance. It's not dumb ignorance, it's just ignorance. It's just I don't know, because a lot of people don't know. And this is the root of the fact that the cloud accentuates all the program problems that we have. Because if we have a hole in our controls or something, and then all of a sudden we let people loose, like that second example I gave you, guess what, big surprise why it happened. So we're gonna go through this. We're gonna, we're gonna go look at how this works right now. And then what you can do about it. I mean, it's not just whining, it's, it's actually. So th this one, you guys will get this. When I talk to cloud people, they go, oh, hmm. 51% of organizations have publicly exposed at least cloud, one cloud storage service, right? There was, I got a notice of one yesterday, I'm not gonna say who to be polite, but I got a notice of one yesterday that there was an S3 bucket left open. Oh no, 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 wrong. There was a MongoDB instance full of millions of client information that was left unprotected for 10 months in healthcare. Just came out yesterday. Took them 10 months to figure it out. Right? So 51% of organizations have actually publicly exposed, at least for a short time, something like that. Only 7% know where all their critical data is. Example number one of accentuating your internal shortfalls when you go to the cloud. Look, so my degree in, from Syracuse, it's, it's an MBA in organizational change and development. What it's really in is small group psychology. And the reason I got a degree in small group psychology and still do research with my now retired <laughs> professor from time to time on it is that I work in cybersecurity. That doesn't mean that I'm going crazy and I need it to stay sane. It means that if you think about group psychology, the problem is we in the cyber bubble and everybody outside of the cyber bubble, we're supposed to be kumbaya working together well, but there's inevitably issues between the group. And by the way, it's very, very simple. Here's the freakiest thing I'll tell you all day probably, is that in individual psychology, when you're around someone in your life who's telling you what you're doing wrong all the time, hopefully not your spouse, but. What do you naturally do? You're naturally like, eh, let me see how I can spend less time with you. Well, think about group dynamics in an organization. Who's telling you what you're doing wrong all the time? Cyber. That's how they perceive it. 
So there is a natural pull, and I've studied this for 20 years, it's amazing. There's a natural repelling that we have on people, even though we're not that way, right? We do tell them what they're doing wrong, but they're being stupid sometimes, so. But they don't like that. So the issue is, is that there's a natural repelling, and, and so this concept of sensitive data protection, I've been in the room, it's gotta be 100 times now, when the cyber team sits down with a business unit that has sensitive data and says, hey, I'd like to collaborate with you, and make sure we know where the crown jewels data is, make sure it's properly protected, and the answer almost always is, that's yeah, a good idea, we actually got our act together, but you ought to go talk to those guys. Only 7% of organizations know where all their critical data is, and we don't know where it is, and some of it's going out there. And it's going onto buckets that people didn't realize they were supposed to lock down. Right? And then 49% of databases aren't encrypted. See the linkage between all this data? People are leaving stuff open. They don't even know what's going out there in the first place, and they're not even protecting it before it goes. Great. 73% of organizations have not implemented PAM, Privilege Account Management, for DevOps, and 80% of security breaches involve privileged credentials. Oops. Now, by the way, that's not just DevOps, right? How many people have actually done privileged account management? I mean, look, people, since SOX came out in, what was it, 2003, people have talked about the importance of privileged account management. And that's another one I've been in the room for 100 times, is when you're going, we need to do privileged account management and this cloud-facing thing, guess what always loses? <laughs> privileged account management always gets deprioritized because we, we, we trust our people. We don't really need to do that one, do we? All right, so there you go. Great stuff. How about 24% uh, of hosts, uh, when this study was done about six months ago, are missing high severity patches? Of course, we all do that great internally already. And finally, <laughs> this one's a little blunt. Thanks, Gartner. 95% of cloud security failures are predicted to be the customer's fault through 2022. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know how to tell you this, but you screwed up. And if you think about all that stuff I just showed you, right? So we're not really sure where all the data is, but it's going out there anyways, and it's not necessarily being protected properly. We're not paying attention to the privileged accounts, and we kind of had problems with that before, and now we're going to the cloud, and the DevOps team is, is even worse. I had another client, once again, I'm not gonna name any names for obvious reasons, but it was a, a long-term, like 30-year CISO. A woman who has military experience, She's one of the top 10 CISOs I've ever worked with. She knows her stuff cold. She went into a, uh, let's call it a new media company. She said, Bob, let me tell you why I'm aging quickly in this job. My developers, it's all agile DevOps. It's all cloud-based, everything. They're, I mean, new functions every week. She said, I've got one business unit full of developers who I'm having a hard time convincing that hiring contractors in Pakistan and China to write code for us and then the keys that are protecting the code are actually stored on the public side. I'm having a hard time explaining to them why that's a problem. You know, mind blown, right? Like, 
what are you guys smoking kind of thing. But that's the reality uh, of what we're in the middle. So let's talk about kind of a, let's talk about the macro factors first. So here's my favorite one. I cannot tell you how many times I will walk into an organization, and when you study group psychology for a, for a hobby, let's call it, one of the things you can see what's going on between groups in the room, you know, such as inviting people at 8 o'clock in the morning to a cavernous building. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that one some other time, but there is this wonderful philosophy that people outside of the cyber bubble have on moving to the cloud. And so I put it up here. We shift, they secure. We're going to shift workloads to the cloud, and of course the cloud service provider is going to lock it down, right? It is amazing how many, that's like the default belief people have that aren't in cybersecurity about moving to the cloud. Well, they got security functions and that's what they do for a living, so they're gonna lock it down, right? No, they give you facilities that you can apply your controls against to lock stuff down, right? So this whole concept of we shift, they secure is terrifying because remember, they're generally not seeking you out. They'll seek you out enough to stay out of political trouble. Oh, of course I checked with cyber on that. I didn't hear back from them, so uh, we just went, right? Or I missed that email somehow, right? But they're going, and they're assuming, and this is, this is where you get the silliness of a S3 bucket open and all the data's gone for 10 months, right? Uh, 2.8 million clients, which was yesterday's, right? So they, cloud service providers, all of them, right? I mean... Azure, AWS, Google, IBM, et cetera. Everybody has facilities for security that allow you to apply your controls against your deployment, but you actually have to go do it. So if you're loose in how you apply controls against your own environment, right, then obviously that just gets accentuated uh, here. Employee training. So this is interesting. So I've now, I literally in June hit 30 years at IBM, which is terrifying. We have mandatory cyber training every year. It's going on this month. And for the first, well, let's see, we probably started doing it about 20, 20 years ago. And for the first 15 or 16 years, it was, I'm a cyber professional. Do I really have to do this? You know, I'd go into it with a bad attitude and come out of it, and I'd learn a few things, and I'd go, okay, well, I learned a few things. I'm actually at the point now in my career, I'm, I'm like, this is actually great, because I know I'm going to learn something I didn't know. I just completed it last week on a flight. I was in, does anybody know where Ras al-Khamai is? Any fans of Ras al-Khamai in here? If you're fans of Dubai, Dubai's gotten really expensive, so people that want to live affordably in Dubai, live 45 minutes away in this town called Ras al-Khamai in the Emirates, and they're now building it up into its own business destination. So on my way back from Ras al-Khamai, I just like saying it, obviously, <laughs> and I did this cyber training, and sure enough, I picked up two or three pointers that I hadn't thought about in a while. I knew the point, but I hadn't been thinking about it, right? So training on what does it mean to move to the cloud, because that's a lot of ours now has cloud stuff in it, is actually very, very relevant, and you have to do that. You have to do that. Now, what about workloads? This is cool. So how do you pick what workloads you're gonna to move to the cloud first? Right? Do you take the most mission-critical things? Some organizations go, go big or go home. 
we're going to take the most mission critical app that we have and move it to the cloud. What most organizations do is the opposite. They'll say, let's take a workload that's important but not mission critical, get our feet wet with how we do this thing. Right? But the question is, is anyone talking to you about this? <laughs> right? They're going to the cloud. Great. Have we done a risk analysis of the workloads that we'd like to move? And where are we on actually doing that? That's a very important. And, and whether that's present or not is one of those litmus tests for how you're doing. Right? Do we know what the, what the you know, two-year plan, three-year plan is for migrating workloads to the cloud? And have we done a risk analysis and figured out priority based on a strategy? How about the cost of migration? I've been at clients where there was an app that everybody got really emotional about. This is the one going to the cloud. And yet the rewrites required to get it to the cloud were like 10x some of their other apps. So what intelligent organizations are doing is they're saying, you know what, rewriting all that and learning on the fly with this, especially cross-reference it with the risk level of the previous bullet, right? It doesn't make sense. Let's take one that doesn't require radical rewrites and get our feet wet by doing it that way. Right? So you have to look at what are the issues around how much work is going to take to rehost that in DevOps. Third, limiting access between services. This is the we shift, they secure micro edition. Right? We're going to put it out there, and then how are we going to make sure that only the right pieces can talk to the right pieces, and that when people go off and spin up a bunch of new stuff, we can enforce those limitations on it? Sprawl. You know, this, this is the one that's killing people, and that's that example I gave you, the second example I gave you, of people get lazy in the cloud. I can do whatever I want. It's the cloud. I can just spin up new stuff. And as I shared with you in that company's example, once they started getting charged for it, they went into full-scale panic mode because the usage was so beyond, now shame on them, right, for not monitoring the private cloud usage more and realizing that was going to happen. It's not like all of a sudden, voila, people started using even more because it was in the public cloud. It's just they had gotten, they had just taken it for granted because everybody's telling how great they were on the private cloud. Oh, this is great. We got this great functionality. And they go, yeah, it's good to be popular for once. Well, that's gone. <laughs> and then provider lock-in. I think that goes without saying. All right, so on the technological side, so Crown Jewels data. Do you know where all the sensitive data is? Most people don't. Most people know where some of their sensitive data is. And let's call it crown jewels data, so the most sensitive of the sensitive. Most people have some idea where some of it is. But I use this term, pre-existing dispersion. For example, uh, one of the things that we've discovered is that a number of large organizations we've discovered, including our own, 60 to 70% of the problem we have with sensitive data moving around is uh, not stored on the IT systems, it's stored on people's laptops and stuff, Word documents, PowerPoint documents, right? So how do you discover and manage that? How do you discover or manage when it's going out to a cloud service? There are clearly techniques that you can use, but it requires a massive focus and investment. I'll give you an example. 
one of the things you can do is you can make sure, you, you can demand that people only use formally approved PowerPoint templates of the organization and that you can put invisible watermarks in those PowerPoint templates. And then monitor when data's going out the door, the door, whether those templates are going to an external source, for example, with that, with that uh, uh, watermark in it. See what I mean? And if that's 60, 70% of the problem, then that's the thing most people don't pay much attention to because they just don't know what to do about it. So knowing where that data is, and if you can't find where all the data is, at least monitoring when it's leaving the four virtual walls of the organization into a cloud service or to external email addresses, whatever, is, is a big issue. Uh, this is a good one. Some apps are very performance sensitive on availability of data. We've seen cases where someone shifts a workload and all of a sudden that extra few milliseconds, whatever it is, that it takes to get that data available blows the app up. Interesting one, right? So you gotta do modeling, you gotta test it, you gotta check it out. So that's one of the issues that comes up here. And then uh, complexity for the staff, right? So how are you gonna do encryption? So, you know, there's cool terms in cloud security land such as, you know, do you wanna bring your own keys or keep your own keys? Right? Do you bring keys that then the cloud service provider administers? Or do you want to bring keys that you continue to manage around the use of your cloud service provider? That, those kinds of issues come up here as, as you're migrating to the cloud. See, see this laundry list of stuff I'm giving you? It's kind of a fascinating laundry list. It's not that each bullet has, oh, wait a minute, but we've got problems already on that. And this is uh, evidence of the accentuation and multi-tenancy, right? What is your policy on that? Are you comfortable with it? Are you sure your cloud service provider is handling that? All right, so that's the macro level stuff. That's the big picture stuff. Are you doing a risk-based view of what workloads are shifting? Do you know they're gonna work? And do you know what you're gonna do to secure it? What we're gonna talk about now is the micro view of this, is what do you do? So in the shared responsibility model, first of all, there's this, you know, are we building a risk management-based view of cloud security, or are we just checking more boxes? And obviously, there's a right answer. So what I'm gonna give you to dis discuss the rest of this is I'm gonna draw, because I'm actually not a PowerPoint fan at all. All right, so what I'm gonna share with you is that once you get to the risk-based approach to moving to the cloud and then managing security in the cloud, there's two topics that always come up at a micro level. The first is how do you run your security operations that includes this cloud-based stuff? So we're gonna talk about how threat management works in a hybrid multi-cloud world. Then we're gonna talk about not your point of view, but the users of the technology's point of view. And we like to call that digital trust. How do you do things that give people the sense that it's properly secured, but not in the way too much? All right, so we're gonna talk about threat management, digital trust of uh, how people are doing that. All right, so the first piece is threat management. And for threat management, you know, I do this all the time and I just look at it. I grew up in Binghamton, New York, actually, and 
my mother was a school teacher, and before the summer before fourth grade, instead of playing all summer, she made me sit at the table on that old paper, lined paper with the dotted line in the middle and write cursive letters all day for an entire summer. That clearly didn't work, but so, <laughs> so I don't suggest you do that to your kids because that was just a wasted summer. But anyways, so threat management. Ding, 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 ding. Closed loop. Most people have three major parts of how they do threat management. I'm going to use the nice informal terms. Find, confirm, and fix. Find the needles in the haystack. Confirm that those needles are sharp enough to take action on. Because not every needle, suspicious thing, needs an action based on the risk level. And then fix it when you do find something that needs help. It's a very vanilla ice cream view of how people do threat management. And I'd observe to you that what most people start with is collecting, normalizing, correlating, reporting, monitoring on logs. Right? And this is the infamous SIM stuff I was referring to. When you move to the cloud, of course, the issue that comes into play here is that now you're not just collecting stuff from your next-gen firewalls and your blah, blah, blahs, right? It's not just cyber stuff. You now have to collect the relevant logs from the cloud service provider. You've got to collect the relevant logs from the Kubernetes containers, for example, or the Kubernetes hosted containers and stuff. So what you're collecting now expands greatly. But the bigger philosophical problem here is that one of the hangovers of the last five or six years in the, in the cyber world is that there's a lot of organizations that believe that is security analytics, meaning period. If you're doing security analytics, you put in a SIM, manage logs, and you're all set. Right? Unfortunately, what most people realize is that logs is old stuff. <laughs> logs have already happened. If you've got uh, contractors in your systems and uh, you do some modeling and discover that a typical contractor downloads three confidential documents a week and you have a contractor right now downloading 3,000 confidential documents, if you're just looking at logs, you may find it later or you may never find it depending on what you're looking for, right? So what has happened in the industry is there's been widespread acknowledgement that the next layer of maturity around security analytics, which is find, is to look at real-time information. And that's where you get into network flow analytics. So that combination of logs and flows has clearly become the best practice. Looking at what's happening right now, traffic-wise, and combine it with what I'm seeing from the historical log analysis. And so um, that combination, but there's, it even goes beyond that. I'd observe to you that maybe 20% of the organizations that we work with, we have five or 6,000 organizations that we do this stuff with, about 20% of them have moved to user behavior analytics. And then ultimately you get into things like forensics, where you can get into a much deeper, like how did this happen and what do I do about it? That's kind of a very simple view of the maturity scale of security analytics. We often wa walk into an organization migrating to the cloud that says, well, security analytics equals log stuff, and I just need to collect more logs. 
anyone who's done this for any amount of time, and I'm sure there's a bunch of you in here that have, is that you realize just adding more logs doesn't increase the efficacy of what you get. And in fact, truth in advertising, when our consultants come in to help a client tune their environment on this, the first thing we usually do is get rid of a good percentage of the log sources they're using. Why are you collecting every syslog entry? Well, because it's there. Well, the efficacy of what you find from syslog is not that good in most cases. It's not that relevant. So all it does is gum up the works of your analytics, right? So it's a less is more kind of thing. So now that you're starting to pull in, you know, logs that you may not even fully understand, say from your containers and stuff, all of a sudden it gets really interesting, right? So find, clearly the view is you wanna, I mean, and this is what's wild, you wanna do this anyways. I mean, whether you're moving to cloud or not, it's irrelevant. But improve the maturity of how you're doing security analytics relative to this. All right, so step two, confirm. When you find needles in the haystack, how do you confirm that they're sharp enough to take action on? They're really a, a potential cybersecurity problem that you need to take some action on. I'd observe to you, and this has been true for 20 years, that the most common practice is this radical technique called Google search. <laughs> we did a study a couple years ago, a level one SOC analyst, watched them do their jobs for a while. And you know they typically find five to 13 blogs that they trust. And when they see something weird, like, hey, uh, someone made a configuration change to their device, which made it a little, a little out of compliance with the policy we've recommended they have, and we start some, seeing some strange behavior related to that device right afterwards. Anybody else seen this? And what they'll do is they'll go to their blog buddies. And I don't mean that. I mean, they're buddies, blog buddies. And they'll talk to each other. And then they'll go do Google searches. The first page, they'll speed read everything on the first page because you get really good at forming your search query, right? Here's what I'm seeing. And what we learned is that there's three quantifiable problems with that approach. Number one is speed, of course, takes a while. Number two is accuracy. We watch the level one SOC analyst speed read a document, and as soon as they read a sentence which indicates to them it's not a match for the problem they're looking for, they stop reading it. And they move to the next search result. Not realizing three paragraphs later, it said, however, if this is the case, here's what it is. They never see it. They're already gone. Speed, accuracy, and insight. As soon as they read a sentence that it is a match for the problem that they see, and they go solve the tactical problem. Not realizing that the five paragraphs after that say, you should also think about this, this, and this, and look for this. They never read it, because they're already moving on to the next thing. And remember, if you've got a bunch of false positives, where they're used to a lot of them not checking out, there's kind of a predefined conclusion that this one's probably a waste of time, too. So you get all the problems of human beings, right, dealing with stuff like that. So the ways to improve this and get more mature about how you're doing this is, first of all, a step we call investigative analysis. And what investigative analysis means is that most of the data coming in there is IT sources. And what investigative analysis does is it brings in unstructured sources, things such as phone call logs, social media sentiment, 
even video feeds, right? Because by the way, if all of a sudden you detect you're, you're doing flow analytics and you notice that there's one IP address getting 3,000 confidential documents, right? Wouldn't it be good to know that they've been trashing the company on Facebook for the last five days? Right? So that's investigative analysis. People talk about, a, oh, a cyber data pool. And, and what this is, investigative analysis, is adding more color to that pool through adding unstructured sources. Okay? And then the ultimate form on the confirmation, and we know this because we've been one of the vanguards of this, is AI. Please don't roll your eyes. Three years ago when AI and cognitive and cyber became popular, you cannot read a data sheet from any of us now that doesn't say we're cognitive or AI now even if it's three lines of code to decide what color the GUI should be based on what the weather outside is. You know, we've been doing Watson for over 10 years. We've been doing Watson for cybersecurity for four and a half years, teaching it how to ingest and digest threat intelligence. And when you do that right, it is incredible. I've got clients that literally, their number to me is 60 times faster threat investigations. However, for every two clients that get value out of Watson using it for cybersecurity, there's one that gets no value. And guess what the difference is? The difference is, is the people who do not take the time to tune. Remember what we started with? If you don't tune your environment for risks and you spend two to three weeks tuning it instead of six to nine months, guess what? If you gave an AI engine garbage, it tries to make sense out of it. It'll make some sense out of it, but, but that sense don't make any sense. Right? So there's a basic baseline here that if you do the basics, the downstream effects are potentially radical. And AI actually exposes that bluntly. Okay? And then finally, fix. Now let's say you find something that needs to be fixed. We have a concept, we like to talk about it as left and right of them. We like, I mean, the simple, simple way of looking at cybersecurity from an operations point of view is left and right a boom. Boom's a cyber event. Left a boom is what do you do to find the problem, detect it. Right a boom is what do you do to fix it, right? Most people have spent most of their time on left a boom. The latest study, 74% of organizations do not have an up-to-date, well-defined up-to-date incident response plan on which things are they worried about and who's gonna do what in what order. 74% of organizations don't have that. It's better because three years ago it was 94%, but that still means three out of four organizations. So I was a math minor at RIT, so I love math symbols. So what most people do for fixing today, I call it null set. What that means is when you have a cyber event, you figure out what to do then. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to point out, or a social scientist even, to point out that when people are screaming and yelling and pointing the finger at you, it's probably the worst time to figure out who's got to do what and what order, especially when the what and what order is some of the people who are yelling at you. And yet, that's what three quarters of organizations do today. So the way to improve that is two levels. First is awareness. If the people outside of the cyber bubble don't see cyber as their job too, and they may say it, but I mean emotionally, they don't feel like it's part of their job, then when something happens, they're pointing the finger at all of us. If we do things, everything from tabletops that matter, you don't know how many times I hear, oh, we did tabletops, but uh, it's an unrealistic scenario, so I don't really pay attention. From tabletops to cyber range, we have a cyber range in Boston that's, we had to add a second shift and we're booked three to four months out 
it's getting the executive team together and the technical leaders to go through scenarios where they realize when you get to this step, if you don't have a plan, it's too late. Right? And then finally is not only awareness, but automation. Not only define your run books and the plan, but actually be able to automate those run books. And it's an, I know it's automate with an asterisk because certain steps human beings have to do, so you can't just automate it. You can automate it in notification, I need you to go do this, right? But then someone's got to do something. But here's where the cloud becomes really interesting. Let's say you build your run books, and now you can go patch the uh, 37 machines that need to be patched when you detect an attack that's taken advantage of a lack of a patch. That's typical. Now we're adding cloud to it. Now all of a sudden, hey, um, we also probably need to go reconfigure the security configurations in the containers that the apps are running in. How many people are comfortable with that one right now? But that's reality check, right? You guys are probably aware we made a little acquisition recently. We did 28 cyber acquisitions, but I don't think all of those put together added up to what we just paid for Red Hat, right? And part of getting ready, and by the way, it's obvious, you know, the platform of the future is that kind of thing. That's why we bought Red Hat. I mean, the platform of the future, right, isn't hardware. It's the system that you're building, deploying your apps on. That's why we bought Red Hat. Part of Red Hat is Ansible, which allows you to go in and reconfigure containers and stuff as well as everything else. Right? So this concept of find, confirm, and fix is huge because how are you doing it maturity-wise in your own shop before you even worry about the cloud? Now what happens with the cloud, you're, being, you're bringing in a lot of new sources here. And by the way, at the same time you're bringing in new sources here, you're probably also starting to bring in some OT sources and IoT sources too, right? That's the other vector we don't even have time to talk about today. Coming into here, and then you need to manipulate the environment on the back end when you find stuff. Right, so cloud movement is causing everybody to relook at how they're doing this. The final thing I'm going to share with you in the six minutes that I've left is this concept I mentioned of digital trust. How do you, how do you provide an environment as the organization moves to the cloud that they feel confident and they go, okay, security's there looking. They're not in my way too much, but they're looking and helping. I would assert to you that depending how you count them, there's between 10 to 12 controls that are the most popular right now for sending that message to people. And I'm going to uh, just summarize very quickly those for you and then see if we have any questions. Those controls span users, data, applications, and uh, transactions. User controls, I'm just gonna throw them out because of time, identity governance, access management, identity management, and privileged account management. On data security, there's a course encryption. A data and file activity monitoring, right? Locking down the data. Um, there's DLP, and then there's discovery and classification. Don't roll your eyes. I, I do when I say it. But what's happened, it is now very possible to track narrow swaths of highly sensitive data from creation through usage. And so discovering classification, especially when you can visualize it, that's big. On devices, it's configuration and management. 
And for uh, apps, it's uh, transactional fraud. Once again, I know that's a quick laundry list, and I'll, I'll post this to the site as well as everything else, maybe a cleaner version of it. But those are the controls that we see people spending most time on as they're moving to the cloud to make sure there are at least the basic controls in place to make the, the organization comfortable. So what I've taken you through here in this time is that when we're securing the cloud, you got to first realize there's three vectors to this. There's four from and in. Security for the cloud, which is a lot of what I talked about. Security from the cloud, which is the fact that our industry is going through a, a it's getting radical change from on-prem to SaaS-based delivery of security stuff. Areas like SIM identity management, static source code analysis are exploding on that. You know, we're seeing four people go to the SaaS version for everyone on-prem we're seeing on that. And then there's security in the cloud, which is how do you peek under the covers within Docker and Kubernetes, et cetera. And that's what I've tried to point out to you is that you can do that but you got to fold that into your operations of what you're doing, right? And then we've got to get over the philosophical hurdles in moving to the cloud of people working together. There is no we shift, they secure, right? We have to do a risk-based view of what workloads are doing. We have to test to make sure the data can keep up with the new reality where they want to deploy stuff. And then from a fundamentals point of view, we as cyber professionals, need to look at how we're doing threat management and digital trust in our own shop, and then extend that to the cloud as well. All right, look, we'd love to work with you guys on stuff like this. We know what we're doing. It's a joy to be here. It's a great event. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us on the Information Security Podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, you can listen to more from the Information Security Summit 2019, featuring keynotes and behind-the-scenes interviews with some of the Summit's speakers by subscribing to the Information Security Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Or go to informationsecuritysummit.org. We'd like to give special thanks to our sponsors, ASMGI and Bright Skies. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay secure.